Once again, where are we in God's kingdom program? <laughs> Beyond Portland, there is something larger, and that is the program of God. The Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the ending. From eternity to eternity, God is pursuing a plan. He is pursuing a program. And thus, in the last hour, we suggested once again that we are in the in-between time. We are in a period of time not prophesied in the Old Testament. That's why Christ treats it as a mystery in Matthew 13, that which is not previously revealed, but only now revealed, Paul says, with regard to the church, unto his holy apostles. So we are in the period between the 70th, the beginning of the 70th seven and the ending of the 69th seven, if you calculate it in the Jewish chronology of Romans of uh, Daniel 9:24 to 27 or to look at it in another way eschatology the last things really has been inaugurated there are those that have taught realized eschatology that the things to come have come that uh, Jesus has come, judgment has come, judgment does come, etc. We've not really dealt with that in class. Uh, that gets more into uh, dialectical eschatology, apocopated eschatology, some of the modern versions of eschatology. We have all we can do just to handle what the Bible says here, uh, let alone what everybody else says about it. So uh, we have not really handled the modern versions of realized eschatology. But I think that inaugurated eschatology is a good statement for where we are today. Uh, we are in the last days. We have been for a long time, Hebrews chapter 1 tells us, when it addresses these last days, writing from the standpoint of the apostles. So uh, the uh, present age is that which is the prelude to the last day or the age to come or the end of the age. Consequently, when the disciples, the apostles, asked Christ what shall be the signs of the end of the age, he was not talking of this time, but of the end of the age. Uh, consequently, when we talk about the mysteries, we are talking about prophecy not revealed before, but in this period of time is uh, new. And that brings us to the mystery of the church as it relates to the mystery of the rapture. What is Christ doing today? Uh, Christ today, in this age before the last day, is gathering a bride uh, that is going to rule with him in the age to come. So Christ is today taking out from among the Gentiles a people for his name. And uh, these people shall rule with him in the life to come. 
Uh, in a later session, we're going to be talking about the judgment seat of Christ. And at that judgment seat, uh, Christ will evaluate the works of those that he has called to himself in this period of time in which we now find ourselves to determine what our position of service shall be with him in the life to come. Uh, Paul says in Romans 8, we are heirs of God, that's one truth, and joint heirs with Christ, that's a second truth, if so be that we suffer with him that we also may be exalted together. Uh, so Christ is today giving those who believe in him an opportunity to so steward their resources that they will develop for themselves a position of service with Christ in the life to come. Uh, basically, then, he is taking out a people for his name, for his bride. When he completes that, which Scripture gives us no timing indication, but when he completes that, uh, then we will see take place what we come to in today's notes namely, the rapture. So, the rapture can be one of those mind renewers that Paul talks about in Romans 12. Stop being conformed to this world system, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. God allows us to look into the future to see some of the things he is going to do in order that it may change the way we live in the present. Uh, let me just remind you of a verse that I uh, read in your hearing a number of weeks ago now in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Uh, Paul says that we do not lose heart. In other words, my, my mind is strengthened. We do not lose heart even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Um, I look out at Bob Vandiver and that reminds me of C.S. Lewis because he loves C.S. Lewis. And one of C.S. Lewis's great works is The Weight of Glory. And in that, he is talking about that which is yet to be revealed in us. He has some very pithy comments in there. And this is what Paul is referring to. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Manifestation. Not a temporal manifestation, but an eternal manifestation of glory in me. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, we're going to look today at something not seen. Uh, we're going to look at some passages with respect to the rapture. There is nothing in all of literature outside of the Bible that can tell you anything about the rapture. Uh, this is a truth that Christ has unveiled to us uh, in order that today 
we might be strengthened in our mind. And it's interesting that after Paul says, for the things which are seen are temporary and the things which are not seen are eternal, he then goes on to say, for we know, not we hope, but we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the, he in the heavens. The truth of the resurrection the truth of the rapture. These truths were mind renewers to Paul. Things that would have caused a man to go insane, perhaps, in his life. Things that he experienced and endured did not do that to him because he thought on these truths. So when we look here at 1 Thessalonians 4, and will you turn to that, please? When we look at 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15 and Revelation 3 and John 14, we are not simply doing an academic exercise. These things that Christ tells us, if we will genuinely allow them to settle down in our heart, will change the way we live even this day. It will change our perspective. Uh, this is the reason God lets us in on some of the things that are going to happen in the future. It did it for Paul. It will do it for us today. But it's got to be more than an academic exercise. You remember the words of Christ in John 15 when he was speaking to very defeated disciples, especially Peter, who had just been informed that he was going to deny Christ, and the Lord gives him some very special words about the future, John 14, uh, believe in God, believe also in me, in my Father's house are many dwelling places, if it were not so I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. The Lord goes down through what we have in that 14th chapter. And then in 15.3, he says, Now you are clean through the word which I've spoken unto you. What word? The words he's just finished. Now you are clean. Now you have been purged. Uh, this will... Uh, lift you, Peter, out of the bottom of the pits where you presently are, if you will think on it. So we are really talking about something dynamic. We are talking about something therapeutic. Uh, don't allow it to be simply academic. Uh, now you are clean, he says. Now you are purged of your phony ideas through the truth which I've just given unto you. Mind renewers from prophecy. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. 
For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming, the parousia of the Lord, will by no means precede those who are asleep. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus shall we always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. I think I mentioned to you some time ago when uh, John Walford was invited to debate Robert Gundry on the rapture, he turned down the opportunity, saying that that is not something debatable, that's the blessed hope. Now, whether it was debatable or not, one can appreciate his attitude. This is dynamic truth. These are words with which we comfort one another, not pummel one another. And uh, so we need to see it from that perspective. However, uh, when you do get into the passage, you have to make some analyses. One analysis that you will make is something here in contrast with the Corinthian passage that you uh, entered into on page 281. Uh, on uh, 278, uh, Dr. Cook brings to your attention at the bottom of the page uh, the problem raised for the Thessalonians as opposed to the problem raised for the Corinthians. Uh, namely, not whether the dead would be raised or not, that is dealt with in 1 Corinthians 15, but what shall be their place with regard to those who are alive at his coming? What is the place of the dead in contrast to those who are alive at his coming? Uh, will the dead lose out in any way? The statement at the top of 279. Will the living have an advantage over the dead when Christ returns? You may wonder why they would get so uptight about this. Uh, perhaps you haven't thought it long enough, about it long enough to get uptight about it, but this was a very real hope. And Paul was characteristically putting before them the idea we which are alive and remain. We who do not go through the grave. We who have our eternal body not made with hands pulled on over us rather than being unclothed to be clothed upon. Uh, back in individual eschatology, you talk somewhat about the state of those who have died. Uh, this bodiless state so to speak. And this concerned them. What about those of our loved ones who have uh, gone before us? Uh, will they lose something? Uh, well, obviously, there was a desire to be alive. Uh, I, would, uh, I would prefer, and I think most of you would prefer, not to go the route of the grave. I don't... Uh, even though I know my eternal state, I still have no desire to die and to uh, go through the grave. I would far rather have 
the Lord, come today and uh, uh, snatch me out, as the word says here, that we translate rapture uh, or that we interpret rapture. Uh, so that is a, is a hope that every uh, child of God has. And one of the interesting things is it never, it never diminishes. Uh, the scoffers in 2 Peter 3, who are uh, saying, where is the promise of his coming? After all, he said he was going to come. He hasn't come. All these years have gone by. Isn't it interesting that uh, century after century can go by and people don't have the same response as they do to other promises that keep on going unfulfilled, but rather their hope gets more and more and more intense. Rather than saying all this time has gone by and it hasn't transpired, instead their attitude is all this time has gone by and it hasn't transpired, therefore we know it is sooner than it was before. Uh, the hope is not gone. So a person who sees that truth as strongly as Paul saw it and lives in the light of it then cannot help but have a concern about those who will not experience it, those who will not have the privilege of being clothed upon rather than being unclothed, those that will not have the opportunity of being raptured. So the, the Thessalonians had a, a very real and serious question. What is the state of those who have died in contrast to those of us who will be alive at the rapture? And that's the issue then that Paul speaks about. Uh, he starts with the certainty that we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Uh, one item that comes before our attention here is that at this particular moment, those who have died will come with him. And that fits in with the next statement, that the dead in Christ will rise first. You may get some non-academic questions in your pastorates, like one that Dr. James McGinley got one time when uh, a lady came to him and she said, Dr. McGinley, why is the Lord preferential toward those who have already died? Why do they get to be raised first? And uh, Dr. McGinley hadn't thought about that before, and he said, as we often do when we don't have an answer, we say, would you repeat the question? I don't think I quite got the question. We got the question, we just don't have the answer yet. And so three times he asked for that, and then finally he said, I think I, I think I have the answer to that. He said, the Lord doesn't want to be preferential, and those who have died have been buried deep in the earth, and he says, therefore, uh, they must be raised first to get them up to ground level, and then the two of us will go together. Uh, I, uh, I'm not sure that that is actually good exegesis of the passage. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, the dead in Christ will be raised first. And then those who are alive will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air so that the Lord coming with those who have been 
raised now will meet those who are at this point being caught up or snatched off, as the word harpazo is there, uh, from the earth, and we will meet the Lord in the air. Now, at that point, we do not go up and meet the Lord in the air, come back down again. Uh, later on, when we talk about uh, what is called the post-tribulational view of the rapture, that really is what you have happening. You go up and come back down again, just will stay there in the first place and save yourself a trip. Uh, the fact of the matter is, we are caught up to meet the Lord in the air, and then to go with the Lord, following out the ancient uh, Semitic pattern of marriage. If you have not thought through uh, that pattern, then I would suggest that you go back to ecclesiology again and get the picture of the bride and the bridegroom and note some of the imagery that I've alluded to there and also the reference to Reynolds Showers' article on the bride and the bridegroom, which beautifully portrays the stages of the Oriental or Semitic uh, marriage ceremony, in which you first have the betrothal, where uh, the parents of the parties to be wed uh, get together and they arrange a suitable economic contract. Uh, they arrange a dowry. And uh, the question that is often asked in Africa today would have been relevant then. How much did you pay for your wife? Uh, we don't ask that here. We don't do it quite the same way. But they would have done it that way then. So you had the betrothal well in advance of any time when the marriage was consummated. And uh, sometime after that, then there would be the coming of the bridegroom with the friends of the bridegroom to uh, meet the bride and to take the bride away to his home. And the bride would have been in preparation all of this time, and uh, therefore uh, she is anticipating his coming, and the bride then goes out to meet the bridegroom, and the bridegroom and the bride and the friends of the bridegroom then go to the home of the bridegroom. And uh, there they have a week of festivities and uh, they, uh, the bride and the bridegroom go into a place called the Hapa, the uh, uh, place where the marriage is consummated. And at that place, he removes the veil from off of the bride. And there, in Jewish tradition, was the first time he saw her. And I think that's the point at which Paul must have given the exhortation, Husbands, love your wives. Whatever you see under the veil, uh, love her. Take her for what she is. Uh, she's yours now. Uh, Till death do you part. So it's not a matter of how you feel about it. It is a matter of a contract. You, you feel a sermon coming on, don't you? Forget it. I'm going I'm to use discipline and resist it. Uh, but the marriage then was consummated in physical union.
And then when the new couple came out of that place of consummation, they enjoyed the feast together with the, uh, uh, all the friends that had come to celebrate. And uh, when you talk about Revelation 19, the marriage of the Lamb has come. That is past tense at that point. And uh, the millennium that follows is going to be a time of uh, fellowship uh, with the bride and the bridegroom uh, for the age to come. So the rapture then that is spoken of here and our being caught up together to meet the Lord in the air is following very carefully the cultural uh, pattern of the marriage situation in ancient Judaism. So when they go up, they don't go out and come back down. They go up to meet the Lord in the air and go to the Lord's place, his home, uh, where the marriage is consummated and where the, where the gifts are given. And in our case, those are rewards that will determine the position of service of the bride in the age to come. Uh, now, a second item that you have on 279 that needs to be related to is right smack in the middle of the page. You'll see the word parousia occur. It says, in turn... Some of these will be alive at the parousia of the Lord. <coughs> that is, some will have fallen asleep, some will be alive. And he says, this term is not to be viewed as a technical one, which always refers to the rapture when related to Christ. And the re remainder of that paragraph goes on to explain that. Now, in the light of that, will you take the sheet that I've handed out to you today? on the terms for the coming of the Lord. This is a condensation, really, of material that uh, is given by John Walvoord, as you note at the top there, in Bib Sack, on uh, a study of the Greek New Testament terms for the coming of the Lord. The three terms are listed and some translations of them given. Under the terms parousia, apocalypsis, and epiphania. Uh, I've just briefly said in Roman numeral 2 what some of the viewpoints are with regard to these terms and why we have problems of interpretation, therefore. For example, in Burkhoff's case, uh, he makes parousia a technical term for the rapture, and apocalypsis is the second coming. And because the two, uh, or because each is used for both occasions, he then makes both events to be the same. Therefore, he makes the rapture to be the revelation, uh, the second advent. Uh, on the other hand, Strombeck and others have assumed that parousia uh, was not an event, but simply the presence of the Lord. And if I remember correctly in Strombeck's work, he too, however, sees parousia as basically the technical term for the rapture. Uh, most scholars seem to agree the three terms are not technical words, that is, each one can be used for either the rapture or the second coming. Parenthesis. 
this tendency of making technical terms out of words occurs repeatedly in uh, all areas of theology, but particularly in eschatology. Uh, for example, uh, someone will read that the elect, the word elect is used of the church, and then they find the word elect in Revelation uh, beyond chapter 4, or they find the elect in Matthew 24, and therefore they say, see, the elect are in the tribulation. Therefore, the church is in the tribulation because the church is the elect. Uh, or they will find the word saints and make the term saints synonymous with church. Uh, Matthew 24, he gathers the elect from the uh, all four corners of the earth. Uh, do not assume that a word is a term. A word only becomes a term in a context. There are many words, many meanings of words, but that word only becomes specific in a context. And uh, this, these terms for the coming of the Lord have been abused on all sides of the eschatological debate. Uh, it is not just a problem of one side. Tendency to make them general. Now look, I'll not go through each of them, but look at parousia, for this is probably the most specific for us. Uh, we've broken down the term into the two Greek ideas, para, the preposition alongside, Usia, the uh, participial phrase being, uh, hence it means one who is alongside or close. Uh, I recall a couple of Jehovah's Witnesses coming to our home one day when I was not there and they confronted my wife and uh, somehow they got into this passage on 1 Thessalonians 4 and she was telling them that her hope was in the coming of the Lord and uh, that she is waiting on that. And uh, they whipped out their Greek New Testament, which they had underlined in red, and those are usually the only words they know, the ones that are underlined in red. And uh, uh, they began to give her uh, a, uh, an etymological study of the word parousia and, or parousia. And they said, this is made up of two words, para, which means alongside, and usia, being, therefore, being alongside. And uh, so this really does not speak about some future coming of the Lord. It speaks about the presence of the Lord. The Lord is, is here presently. Well, uh, Ruth just happened to be up on her uh, etymology a little better than they were. And uh, she said, well, uh, uh, for someone to be uh, present, they have to have arrived, don't they? And uh, to have arrived, they have to come, don't they? As a matter of fact, she said, when you go back and look at this word in the past, uh, you will find that it was taken out of the world, the Greek world, uh, when it was referring to the coming of a king. And they made tremendous preparation for the coming of the king. The parousia of the king. And uh, then when he arrived, of course, that was a great day, and having arrived, they enjoyed his presence. 
So all three terms are there. All three ideas are there in the term. Coming, consequent arrival, arrival, and presence. Uh, when he comes, he will arrive and we will enjoy his presence. But he has not yet come. But you see, they had taken one piece of the idea in parousia, presence, without arrival and coming. All three ideas are in the word. Now, when you uh, put the word in its context, you'll find 1 Corinthians 16, 17, the first reference there, the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus. Obviously, that's a non-technical use of the term. It's not talking about the coming of Jesus Christ. Or you have it used of the coming of Titus or Paul's coming. Or you have it used of the coming of the man of sin and his subsequent presence. Or the coming of the day of God or Paul's presence. Uh, obviously, those are not technical references to either the rapture or the second coming of Christ. But they're usages of the word parousia. On the second page, you have the technical usages which are determined by putting the word in its context. So in 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, we have a clear reference to the rapture, the passage that we're working on now. At the beginning of 2 Thessalonians 2, uh, when it exhorts us concerning our coming together unto him, uh, our assembling, that is uh, a reference to the rapture. And the other passages you have before you. But on the other hand, note number two under B, references which appear to apply to the second coming. For example, Matthew 24, 3. The, what is the sign of thy coming, or the sign of thy parousia? And we've noted there, it is doubtful that the disciples knew at this point anything about the rapture. <coughs> the rapture was not a matter of revelation. Therefore, when they were asking about the parousia, they were not asking about the rapture, the mystery of the rapture. Uh, they were asking about his coming at the end of the age. In the passage, it is quite clear that that is not the rapture. And then there are other areas where it is not so clear. So the conclusion of the paper, and <clears throat> you do the same thing with Apocalypsis and the same thing with Epiphania, and then you come to the end of the paper, and I think the conclusions are valid, three of them. None of the terms used are in and of themselves technical in nature. Each demands its meaning be derived from the context in which it appears. And then secondly, the terms are not categorizing words, but they are characterizing words. The term itself does not lock you into rapture or revelation. They are characterizing terms. They seem to describe rather than to define. And then the last note I've already referred to yesterday, and I make reference to it in the paper on imminency. So please be aware of the use of those terms on uh, 279. Any question on that? All right. Um, the point of verse 15, then, at the bottom of 279, is that the living will have no advantage over the dead in the parousia. Uh, they will emphatically not precede the dead into the Lord's presence. I have one other clarifying note that I want to make on page uh, 280 with regard to this passage. In the middle of the page, 
Paul notes two things of significance to the Thessalonian believers and those of us who would be instructed by this letter. Both are triggered by the parousia. First, the dead in Christ will rise. And uh, these are a part of the group designated as those who are Christ's, who will be raised in connection with the parousia, now using it as a technical term. That they are a particular subgroup is seen in the use of the phrase in Christ. This is a technical expression descriptive of those placed in Christ by the baptizing work of the Holy Spirit. Just to pull together ecclesiology and eschatology at this point, I would suggest that that would be better read. Uh, those who are placed in the body by the baptizing work of Jesus Christ. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. In one spirit were we all baptized into one body. Baptism is into body relationship and the body is placed in the spirit for the care and safekeeping by the spirit until the body is reunited with the head at the rapture. So he talks about the dead in Christ will rise first. <coughs> then the second incident of significance relates to what we've just referred to, the rapture for being caught up. Please be aware that uh, the word rapture is not in the scripture. That's also true of Trinity. It's also true of a number of other words which are theological summary words for a doctrine. Uh, the word here, harpazo, means to snatch away, to seize, or to carry off by force. And the picture given is that of a sudden, forcible seizure by divine agency. God will lift us up into the air. That's 1 Corinthians, pardon me, 1 Thessalonians 4. You want to add anything to that? Any of your own observations or any questions? All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In 1 Corinthians 15, you have a corollary truth to that which is given in 1 Thessalonians 4. The area of concern is different. The area of concern in Thessalonians, what is the status of of those who have died in relationship to those who will be raptured. Uh, the matter of uh, 1 Corinthians 15 is dealing with the condition of the saints uh, at the resurrection. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 and uh, verse 50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We're back to the term again, musterion, that which has not heretofore been revealed, that which is only now at this juncture revealed. We shall not all sleep. We shall not all die. But we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. 
For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall all be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Once again, note verse 58, and note how the writer conjoins an exhortation with the revelation. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Uh, in 1 Thessalonians 4, it was comfort one another with these words as a result of the revelation of the rapture. In 1 Corinthians 15, the revelation of the condition of those who are raised, the resurrection is an item for being steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Once again, a mystery that he tells us with regard to the church saints. I don't think there's any area there that I want to uh, uh, particularly expand, except you may have a question raised with regard to the last trump. Uh, remember you had uh, reference to a trumpet, in 1 Thessalonians 4, you have reference to the last trump in 1 Corinthians 15, and you will find seven trumpets in Revelation. Let me go back to the same uh, point that I made just a little bit ago then. The references to trumpets and the reference to the last trump and the reference to a trumpet in 1 Thessalonians 4 can only be identified by looking at the context. You cannot take the last trump of 1 Corinthians 15 and try to relate it to the last of seven in Revelation. Say, what does it relate to here? Well, in the context, he seems to be having the whole idea of mobilizing for war. If you go back even to verse uh, 29 and on, Paul talks about the warfare and those who are dying you have that uh, problem of the baptism for the dead. What does that mean? I take it the, the whole uh, mode of talk here is the battlefield. And uh, in the Grecian context, the last trump was the, was the occasion for moving now into action, moving into battle. And I take it that's what he is saying here. I've equipped you. I've given you the resources that you need uh, now, uh, uh, be steadfast, be immovable, be abounding in the work of the Lord. So the, the, uh, the whole mode is battlefield. Now, in the light of that, I think it is interesting that he says then, uh, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. That is, the trumpet for moving out. To me, that's what the passage is talking about. It's not talking about a series of seven. It's talking about the cue for moving out in the battle. The last passage is Revelation 3.10. 
and I suspect what I'd better do, uh, rather than uh, trying to press that here, is to uh, come back to that in the next hour. But before I let you go, uh, let me um, uh, make an announcement and ask a, a matter of preparation on your part. I've asked Dr. Packer if he would come into class tomorrow as a real, live, living uh, amillennialist, and uh, that uh, he would uh, come before you charitable people who would only ask kind questions. Uh, I, you know, here here is a man who is deeply committed to the Scripture and the integrity of the Scripture, the inerrancy of the Scripture, who is deeply committed to proper hermeneutics and uh, to good interpretation, and yet a person who has differences of opinion, eschatologically, from probably most of us, hopefully from all of us. Uh, uh, yet it is good for us to hear one another. What does he do when he approaches a certain passage? Where does he fit certain things into the scheme of things? Uh, for he would certainly agree that uh, uh, God has purpose for this earth, that God is uh, uh, working toward the consummation, which is that he would bring everything into submission to, uh, Christ would bring everything into submission to God and then hand all things over to God, that he may be all in and all. All of that would be true for him. So what I'd like to ask you to do is to prepare some questions for tomorrow. The whole class will be simply Dr. Packer fielding questions from you. So think of questions that are insightful questions on your part that you would like to ask and get an answer from him rather than just reading a book like Anthony Holcomb's uh, The Bible in the Future and reading the viewpoint, you have the opportunity for some interaction. You want to do that? Are you for that? I didn't know whether I was laying something on you that would be too heavy or not, but uh, I think it's a good challenge for us. Tomorrow, your questions.